You're listening to And hey everyone, welcome back to the Good Pop Culture Club. It's Friday, July the 24th, 2020. It's episode episode 16. How's everyone doing? My name is Marvin Yue. And on this episode, we're talking all about the new Netflix adaptation of The Babysitter's Club. Uh, joining me, as always, is self-proclaimed professional Asian-American Jess Jew. How's it going, Jess? Hello. And also, culture editor Han Wen. Hey, hey. How's everyone doing? We're approaching the end of July, and we're very close since all of us are recording in the county of Los Angeles to um, Lockdown Part 2. But the, the, the first lockdown ever truly end, Marvin. Not for me, but... Not for any of us, for I don't think. <laughs> Yeah. Huh. Well, Jess, I know you've been preparing for Lockdown Part 2 by building your very own cafe in your home. Yes. One of the big things I miss is just chilling in a cafe and paying for too much coffee. So I have invested in a espresso machine, like a, like a legit one. There, did you know? Fun fact, guys. Espresso, espresso machines are ridiculously expensive. <laughs> That's what I've gathered. But, yeah, I figured if I drink like a hundred lattes, it will make it'll pay you'll make I'll break even. So um I'm like pretty good. I'm like halfway, I'm like a quarter there. I've been drinking like two shots every single day, super hyped. I don't know if you could tell. <laughs> yeah, how long does that last you? Um I do stay up until like four AM most mornings. So it must be working. So where are you sourcing your beans? I have tried various places. I'm still figuring it out. Um, I I went on like a, I went on like a anti-racist buying spree, which I understand is like inherently ironic and ethical consumption is not possible under capitalism. But I did purchase a lot of coffee from Black-owned coffee shops, and there's this one brand I tried, Bold, and I'm not getting paid for this, by the way. Um, <laughs> it's like Bold and Power, and it's delicious. It was. It was very, very fragrant and delicious. But like, I think it's like wine where it's like, unless it's like a $1 box wine or like a, like a really shitty coffee that's been like sitting on a shelf somewhere. I can't really tell. <laughs> I feel like also like wine, the more you drink, you'll start to at least convince yourself that you can taste the different notes that's listed on those coffee containers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like totally bullshit to myself. I was like, yeah, yeah, like literally no one cared. There's no one in my house who would care or like judge me for not knowing. I just would judge myself. It's like, oh, yes, yes, I truly do smell the bell pepper <laughs> notes. I mean, this. you did convince yourself to purchase a very expensive espresso machine. So you're obviously all in. It's delightful. It's brought me the most joy in this part of quarantine. Um, which is quarantine part two or 1.5 or 1A. It's and like, <laughs> yeah, 1, yeah, 1A. 1A. One continued or 1B. Yes. One, it's, one B. it's the one second B. part of one. Um, exactly. I feel like, but, uh, if anything, COVID is going to bring us back to the era of small community villages. I can imagine a future where your home cafe becomes the coffee shop of your like little community oh my god it's gonna be like animal crossing but real life (laughs) exactly speaking of animal crossing though marvin what's popping with you start with me this week yeah we're gonna switch it up it's 16 (laughs) sweet 16 (laughs) um yeah uh so for my what's popping last week i mentioned that i binged a shit ton of stuff um this past week has been the polar opposite i haven't binged jack shit and a lot of that has to do with just, um, I don't know, it's just, I feel like this week, the accumulated stress of just living in these weird times have gotten to me. Um, I've been manifesting some physical um, expressions of that stress, which is really, you know, sucky. So to, you know, cope with that, I've just been, you know, just playing some video games, kind of like my go-to stress relief. Um they introduced diving into Animal Crossing, so I've been doing a lot of um, that. Although I still haven't caught one of those giant clams yet. The ones where the scallops, where the otter or Pascal will... No, there's actually a giant clam. Like, just like there's giant fish in the, in the sea that you can fish, there are like giant what? clams you can I find. I haven't got one either. Yeah. Are they in season? 
Yeah, no, and the way you find them is they're the ones that run away really fast when you're trying to chase after them. So um, the only reason I know this is because my my girlfriend has caught like ten. So <laughs> rude. She for, no, so for some reason my island I catch nothing but sea bass, but she's been catching sharks left and right. She catches giant clams left and right. Um, I think you it's need just to go to she, her island. Go to her island and go <laughs> sharking. That's true. Um, and clamming. Yeah. So in addition to Animal Crossing, I've also been picking up on one of my go-to um, just chill-out games, um, which is a game called Cook, Serve, Delicious. Um, specifically, the third one that's on um, Early Access right now on Steam. So for those of you who don't know what it is, Cook, Serve, Delicious is a... I want to say it's a restaurant management game where you play the cook owner of a uh, food establishment and every day you set your menu and then you run through a day of service and um, each dish on your menu requires a certain unique button combination to cook so you know you're flipping pancakes you're making burgers you're assembling sandwiches and it's an exercise in pattern recognition and memorization and also strategy you want to make sure that your menu kind of flows so that you don't end up with like 10 dishes all with like multi-step preparation processes you want to include some like simple stuff like a carving station or like something you can just fry up like fries or chicken nuggets and it's a pretty fast-paced game and it really invokes the feeling of um like when i used to work at the cafeteria of my dorm in college and 10 minutes before breakfast service ends you get a whole line of people slamming you with orders for breakfast burritos, which is the most complicated menu item we have because everything has to be custom made. Um, it really takes me back to those days. I was like, yeah, this sounds very stressful to me. <laughs> I mean, I'm the person who found Animal Crossing stressful, so I haven't come back in like two months. So we'll see because I do like food games usually because I like food. So <laughs> I think ironically for me, um, this type of thing is exactly what my brain needs to like focus everything on this one task of like making mm. fake dishes and um, not thinking about all the other things that are going wrong in the world. Um, but yeah, um, the first two games were, I sunk so many hours in them. So I was really excited that the third game is out and they kind of changed up the, um, the formula. So in the third game, instead of running a restaurant, you run a food truck. And you're making a road trip across the um, ruined landscape of a post-apocalyptic America. Um, and they did a lot of cool things to really change up the gameplay flow. Um, so like now every single stop on your food truck is like a rush hour and you get slammed every single time. So it's, it's a mad dash to prep as many dishes as possible while you're in transit between your stops. And um, it's actually been a lot of fun. But I bring this game up because last night something amazing happened. Uh, where so typically when i'm planning menus for my game here i usually try to optimize it so that i can have a balance of difficult dishes to get points but also things that i can make quickly so um, dishes like ratatouille and lasagna are more complicated dishes because they take more steps but they're steps that i can memorize last night i played a level that forced me to take on an east asian um, menu and required me to have sushi on the menu. Ironic. Yeah. So sushi is a menu item that I typically don't include because it takes a lot of steps and you only make three servings per um, batch, which is very inefficient and makes it really hard. It's like a five point uh, menu item. So it was a challenge because I guess I had been making things too easy for myself. Um, but at the same time, I'm also a perfectionist at this game. I need to get perfect scores on every level. So um, cue me restarting this level at least 50 times before I finally, finally got the 100%. And let me tell you, I felt real good and accomplished. Now, is this a co-op game like... Um... Was it overcooked or is this something you have to like yeah, shoulder they... the burden alone? <laughs> um, there is a co-op element to it, um, but it's not like you can't share dishes. Everyone kind of just makes their own. I actually never played co-op in this because that sounds like a nightmare. Um, I was like, you want to keep your girlfriend because <laughs> right. she has the island with the shark. Oh, she's watched, giant she's clams, watched me play so... this game before. And she's like, what the hell are you doing? Because I'm just like hitting buttons furiously trying to like oh, this bang out bad. like 10 steaks. This just sounds scary. This just sounds upsetting, Martin. <laughs> There's not even um, like the bonding 
component of Overcooked. <laughs> it it really is a great game, though, and I definitely recommend it to um, anyone who wants to check it out. Um, I know I didn't really do a great job of selling it um, as a um, relaxing game, but trust me, it's weirdly satisfying. It's like playing a puzzle game, and you just get that endorphin hit every time you finish a, a day of service, and it's what's getting me through at least this past week. Uh, Cook, Serve, Delicious is out on early access now on Steam. And the 1.0 version should be coming out soon. I think they're just missing the final challenges before the game is complete. But the game does play really good right now. And I definitely recommend it. Um, Yeah, check it out. Uh, Jess, what's popping with you? I have been... uh, I just... The first episode came out of a new podcast from one of my favorite like media networks the ringer which is really ironic because i hate sports i do not watch sports i watch sports movies but i just do not like follow real sports but two of my absolute favorite personalities have started a podcast together so it is the connect with shay serrano and jason concepcion it's great it's like the concept is they find two movies with some re- related theme and then they uh they break it down and they have this reoccurring game i assume it's reoccurring they've only released one episode but it's called the rodriguez it's kevin seven degrees of kevin bacon but instead of kevin bacon they use michelle rodriguez because she's way more awesome than kevin bacon <laughs> uh so it's great and the first she has episode been in a ton of films is, too she I has mean, she's, she's been very fast and furious alone exactly it really touches like and you know they are both big fans of fast and furious as am i um so it's really it's really fun you know i think at this time podcasts are popping especially these personality based ones because you have no friends now and you can't talk to them so podcasts are your new friends and it's i i've always enjoyed both of them on their separate respective podcasts shay serrano has one of the more delightful twitter feeds uh, where he either is always giving away money to just people in need, or he's telling people to fuck off because they support Donald Trump, and it's it's truly delightful. Uh, I would highly recommend it if you like movies and you like um, hot takes. If uh, <laughs> their first episode, they're comparing Office Space and Scarface, <laughs> and the theme is workplace friends, <laughs> which I was like, I. Yeah, everything. It's like it's true. I mean, I think we we've all. None of, I don't think any of us have been in an office in a while. But like you know, the world of like workplace friendships and this such an ephemeral. You're so close for just that blip in your life. Like there was no other. Sometimes your work friends, you're like, there's absolutely no other situation in which we would have been friends or have met or even been this close. But yet, work and the the <laughs> the struggles against capitalism truly are friendship forming yeah it makes you wonder how those bonds can survive the whole work from home thing because there there's no longer any happy hours to really complain about your boss at right no and there's no more like water cooler talk right because everybody like when we're you're in a physical office like half the time you just want to kind of avoid doing work like you need a break (laughs) so you're just gonna go roll on over to like you know like deborah and like shoot the shit with deborah and you know you end up being friends, um, you know. But now, now, now you have to actively seek out Deborah, and then you have to ask yourself, would you actively seek out Deborah? But yeah, it's great. And it's really fun. Uh, I, there's a lot of other like shows on the Ringer Network. I really like. I don't like Bill Simmons though. I think his takes are trash. But everyone else on the <laughs> network, I really like most of the time. They have the Harry Potter one, right? Binge mode. Oh, binge mode is binge mode was my entryway into this whole thing. It's Mallory and Jason, and they do a really deep dives into like big IPs. Like uh, their first, they first did it originally for Game of Thrones. They did every single episode, and then they did a whole Harry Potter deep dive, which was very very delightful. Context, real life context, <laughs> notwithstanding, right now, but yeah, yeah, it's great. <laughs> they have a huge back catalog. I I definitely would check it out. Yeah. Han, what's popping with you? Uh, so I will also talk podcasts, but I did want to say that I know Kate Halliwell, who's at The Ringer. Uh, she's a former IndieWire intern. Uh, so I'm excited that you're such a fan, but I actually haven't checked out any of their podcasts. So I will check out The Connect because that sounds like 
It's for me. There is definitely like a sports side of the podcast yeah. realm. I do not I would touch. ignore that. <laughs> I yeah. do not touch at all. Like they have a lot of like NBA shows and basketball stuff. I don't care about that. But their pop culture stuff is. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of that, though, I am going to mention the sports podcast, uh, but it's only because there is a caveat. It is not talking about regular team sports. It is talking about Olympic adjacent stuff. So um, the 30 for 30 um, podcast from ESPN recently did a mini series called Heavy Metals. Um, that's all about the sort of like gymnastic regime uh under the carolis <gasps> that yeah exactly so just for those who may not be super familiar with them um they're the husband and wife team who made Nam- nadia kamanichi uh you know a gold medalist in romania they defected to the united states and then started you know teaching mary lou retton and everyone else carrie strug all the way up through like simone biles but they have been accused of like being a bit too ruthless um, in their practices, in, um, not just, you know, creating physical injuries, but also an atmosphere that led to the enabling of uh, pedophile uh, Larry Nassar. So, Yikes. but it's, yeah, but it's a, I think it's a seven part series. I could be wrong about that, but it's really, really good because I know, Jess, you and I are really big into Olympics and especially yeah. gymnastics. And it brought all these moments back to me, like remembering these, you know, like the finals and stuff like that. But because um, at first I was like, it's a podcast and gymnastics is visual. Do Am I going to like, but it was still very good because they had the participation of a lot of gymnasts. Um, and they, you know, contextualize and get some um, like their, uh, the Carolis. Um, choreographer uh, Gesa Posar. He they he's also a source, so he does interviews. So yeah, they have a really good access, and I actually found it very compelling. Like I think I binged it over two days because you know I listen when I exercise, and then um that actually sort of set the tone for me when I decided to finally get to Netflix's documentary about Larry Nassar and the USA gymnastics, um called Athlete A. And so it, it it just really showed like how much, again, capitalism uh, <laughs> is the poison um, because USA Gymnastics, you know, decided to not just ignore, but also cover up a lot of this uh, stuff because USA Gymnastics was making major money from having medalists. And, you know, if the Crowleys were good for uh, gymnastics and, you know, this also this doctor was, you know, they kept winning medals, then they were just going to keep on going that way. So um, it's really good. I would recommend that. Uh, um, speaking of which, you know, this Friday, the, the day this podcast comes out, is also the day that the Tokyo Olympics would have <laughs> opened. So, yeah, I've actually been looking through a lot of uh, Olympic adjacent content because there's been so much because they all timed it for this time. And of course, now that the Olympics are postponed, <laughs> it's a lot of it's still coming out. So for me, I'm just like, OK, I'll consume some of it because it's some of it's actually like really interesting and good. This um, the whole point of, you know, heavy metals coming out was this was supposed to be the first Olympics um, without the Carolis. So they would have had, you know, to find out how these girls were being trained and if it worked without them and all this other stuff. So, um, yeah, it's kind of a shame. I really and, you know, of course. A year makes a difference for a lot of people as far as training, aging, you know, weight. Oh, my God, especially for gymnastic women's gymnastics. Mm -hmm. uh, It's it's your you know, they they like I don't know how much people know about gymnastics, but they set an age limit now. So you have to be 16 in the year that the Olympics start to compete. Uh, And even if you qualify, if you're too young, they don't let you compete. And like 16 is actually like. It's, I'm not saying it's old for a female gymnast, but the traditional way in which gymnastics was structured greatly benefited much younger girls, basically prepubescent girls, because yeah. you're training your entire life. And then once you hit puberty, your body's center of gravity shifts, right? Like things start, you start growing in different ways. 
So it just basically you have to kind of it kind of undoes some of your training and then you have to relearn how to train, which is like Nadia come come and see, you know, her famous routine where she got those like perfect tens. She was like 12. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Men have a much longer span, career span. You could be in like your I know like men, gym, male gymnasts and they're like late 20s, well, like like, early 30s. Well, still. men gymnasts, it's more strength stuff, right? Less flexibility. Well, it's not just that um, the. Like here's the thing: if you actually look before Nadia Kamnich, um, the the gymnasts actually looked older. They were women, like closer to being women's age. But after Nadia, that's when the Carolis had their big mark. Then they start. Their whole thing was you train them since they're kids, and so they actually made it so that we think of women's gymnastics, you know, with young, 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 young girls. So it that actually hadn't been the case previously. And so they actually like created like this ripple throughout the whole Olympics, you know. <laughs> and uh so that's what we're used to now. And I'm I did not know that about the minimum age now. So that's that's good. Yeah. That's they, really they good. Pushed it. And that's why there's that big scandal like in mm-hmm. the in the Beijing Olympics, because China totally like faked the birth records so that much younger girls could compete on their team. <laughs> I think they got their they got the medals stripped away, but mm. I'm yeah, it would have been interesting to see because like let's be real, like I mean I I don't think, you know, like winning I personally don't think like winning a gold medal or like is worth like fucking up a bunch mm-hmm. of people and young girls <laughs> and like subjecting them to abuse. Mm. Yeah. But also being aware that like there are other co- like you cannot if you're not gonna go like as if you're not going to go like China hard on shit, like you're not going to beat China. Well, that was the whole thing. It's the whole <laughs> Soviet bloc and like China that they were creating these super, you know, like gymnasts. And it was they were going younger and also they were training from childhood. And oh, my God. Being yeah. But they're, they're, it's yeah. terrifying. Like you get right. You get identified and like ripped away from your family. And then yeah. you have to train and you have to live apart from your family for and like basically until you retire. Like you have no freedom. They like low key like I think they encourage certain like maybe you guys should get together because your kids would be really good athletes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. so that didn't go that far. But definitely this podcast does go over how like the Curly's had their own ranch in Huntsville, Texas and like what went on there and stuff like that. So, it's you know, you know, it's nefarious when you call your your uh, sports training facility the ranch. The ranch. (laughs) That's true. That's very. It was a ranch, though. Like there were cows and horses. So. (laughs) Uh, anyway, but yeah, yeah. Uh, it was interesting to me because I grew up in Houston and Huntsville is just north of there. So I do remember hearing a lot of this. And of course, I followed Mary Lou Retton and all of the uh, gymnasts. Um, yeah. And I did gymnastics as a kid. Mm. What's the podcast called again? It's uh, ESPN's 30 for 30. So it's their most recent mini series. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, really good reporting um, and sourcing and all yeah. that type of stuff. Well, that'll do it for this edition of What's Poppin'. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're talking all about the new Netflix adaptation of The Babysitter's Club, as well as the media that got us through our childhoods. Uh, stick around. Kathy, Kim, Steve, what's going on? Tell me, what do you know about K-dramas? Oh, um, they have something to do with the drama that comes from K-cup coffee pots because, you know, they're bad for the environment. Uh, No. Oh, you mean Korean dramas? Yeah, I know that they are very grounded in reality. No, that's actually the opposite of what happens. It it sounds like you don't know anything about K-dramas. Yeah, I was just guessing. That's actually perfect. Remember Will, Phil, and Joanna did that Korean drama podcast? Yeah, they saw Boys Over Flowers. Yes, and people apparently listen to it and want another season. But Will and Phil are still recovering from that season. Oh my god, are they okay? I did hear they tried to give themselves amnesia. Oh, is that a K-drama thing? Yeah, pretty much. So, are you guys down to help out with the new season of the Korean drama podcast? So we're going to be watching a K-drama this time? Which one? Secret Garden, from 2010. It was a big hit. And if you're down, check out the Korean Drama Podcast at koreandramapod.com. Gotcha! Am I going to see sauna towel buns? And welcome back to the Good Pop Culture Club. Uh, we're here to talk about the Babysitter's Club. Specifically, the 2020 Netflix original version of the Babysitter's Club, um, which is something that uh, I believe we've all seen by now. If you're not, 
Go watch it right now. You could do it in one <laughs> sitting. It's a great binge watch. So Jess, why don't you let us know what the Babysitter's Club is all about? Babysitter's Club was originally a series of books by Anne M. Martin about a group of young women who are like 13 years old in Stony Brook, Connecticut, who start a babysitter's club. And it's about friendship and business entrepreneurship and coming of age. And honestly, I would not trust the 13-year-old to babysit my children, my younger children, my hypothetical younger children. But you know what? This is a beautiful world where things aren't in a dumpster fire and it's fine it was also in the 80s when it first came out so different time you know yeah there was a movie made movie version made with some heavy hitters of the time like uh larissa odek you know she was in like a bunch of these team movies and skylar fisk who is randomly sissy spacex's daughter and is now a musician and rachel lee cook you know like big team people big teen like idols in the 90s when they were a bit younger they made a movie what has she done besides she's all that that's all she has to do oh my god she's <laughs> been in and so many cats. things yes oh my god she's How dare you? Cook. what do you mean only she's hot and i like ready to start a mob like she could have just done she's all that and that would have been an amazing legacy okay can I just tell Obviously, you? Obviously, because that's the, the only thing I can think of that she's no. been in. Can I just tell you that the she's legit because even the Hallmark Channel knows that she is now playing a mom in many of those mm. movies. <laughs> so yeah, no, she's been in so many things. Oh God! Anyway. She did play Tifa on one of the Kingdom Hearts. I don't remember that. For all my nerds, yeah, out educate there. yourself. <laughs> yeah, she did. I'm looking this up. Final Fantasy VII Advent Children. But yeah, yes. She's all that, and Josie and the Pussycats are really all you need, but she's been definitely... Like, I didn't watch Josie and the Pussycats. What? What's wrong with you? It has, like, Rosario it has everyone. Dawson, and... Oh, my God. <laughs> I feel wrong. like we need Breck a new... Meyer, Seth Green, uh, Donald Faison. Who else? Well, those are some names that I know. <laughs> yeah. I'm telling you, there were I... a, a boy band called DuJour. I feel like it we should have... It was actually much, like, more... It was much. It was a much smarter movie than I think people gave it credit for. It was very, very tongue in cheek. It's yeah. very tongue in cheek. Very postmodern, like subversive, but definitely yeah. like it, it kind of got panned when it came out. But it's actually very, very funny. I remember seeing it in a theater with my friends, and there's only one other person there, and it's a man in a coat. <laughs> oh that's, no! That's that was so weird. Yeah. Where do you live? Were you living and in Houston? You don't need no, a no, no. I think I was too. I was. I think I. When was this movie? Josie and the Pussycats was in 2001. So I was in L.A. You don't need a coat <laughs> for L.A. Aww. I think we should dedicate some of our episodes to just pop culture gaps. Now I'm realizing that I have quite a few. Oh, yes. Okay. We'll do that. Okay. <laughs> yes. But anyways, Babysitter's Club, back to wholesome content. You pervs. Um, so they did a reboot on Netflix. It's really well done. The creative team includes a showrunner, Rachel Shuker, who ran Glow, uh, as well as some producers, a creative team, executive producers, I believe, if not all, mostly women. And you can definitely tell uh, a lot of, I think all the directors or most of the directors in the season were women, a lot of women in the writer's room and it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's wholesome and, but like addresses like, it's it's been updated so it addresses stuff that you know we care and talk about today it's stony brook seems a much more diverse place you know some of the changes they made was marianne is now a biracial character with a single white dad played by wonderfully played by mark evan jackson aka sean from the good place um and that that is uh kind of like another layer of why he's so protective and he's more of a kevin in this show though much more of a kevin yes wholesome kevin and then dawn is a latina like activist girl who moves to connecticut um there's like more gay characters there's a trans character who they babysit and it's all just lovely yeah i'm curious what are your personal experiences with babysitters club because for me i didn't read any of it growing up because it was for girls Right. At least in my in my boy head, it was for girls. Uh, ditto. Not just because it was for girls. Because I did stay away from a lot of girly books, but it was 
four girls about babysitting. And that was like made me so angry because I hated <laughs> babysitting. I did like I was very anti uh gender roles as a kid. Like not that I mean, yes, I still am, but like since I had two brothers, everything was about like, why didn't you ask them to do that? What what about them? Why don't they babysit? You know, and so yeah, I didn't pick up any of these books because I figured it was like patriarchal propaganda to make me want to babysit. I I've I read like loose books here and there. I was not the biggest fan of the books just because I was more of a magic treehouse gal. But I was absolutely obsessed with the movie version. And it was in my like collection growing up. Like you you know when like before you have memory, like things are just there. So it's kind of like like this thing has existed like has before you were born. So therefore has always existed. So Babysitters Club the movie was one thing that something that always existed and I'd watch it like very frequently with my sister is and she was four years older which is a huge age gap right when you're young so that was like a thing we could both like really enjoy and I watched it like recently it still slaps it's great oh is it's it good great. should I check it oh, out it's so yes you should check it out um but um I, I don't think you need to have know anything about original book series or the no. movie it's it's a lovely self-contained series um i think it's pretty so i obviously don't have kids none of my friends have kids yet we're all in like we're like all like older millennials like hit around hovering around 30 none of us have kids and like everyone's been obsessed with it like my family my sister my cousins like a bunch of my friends like we're not the key demographic for this and yet we're all extremely enjoying this <laughs> yeah i mean so my girlfriend um apparently owned every single book in the series wow when she was younger dedication um, before donating it to a library um oh is she nice. kicking herself now no um, i mean as you grow up you need space to put you know stuff right? sad adult things like a <laughs> vacuum cleaner <laughs> exactly so i've been watching with her over Basically, we call each other on the phone and we watch it at the same time because that's very cute. Yeah. Um, and she's been having a good time and just um, she's a self-proclaimed Marianne and she is very happy with the way that she's being portrayed. Okay, then we we gotta. I have to ask you this: like, who are you? Are you a? Are you a Claudia? Are you a Stacy? Are you a Christy? What What are your? Are you a? I think I'm a. I'm a Chrissy with a rising Claudia. What does that mean? I hear Christy. that people say that a lot. I, I'm not it's like your horoscope, but with baby club characters. So I'm not very versed on horoscope uh, terms. Like, who are you mind. most like, and who do you have some similarity overlap with? <laughs> but who are you like most like? I'm definitely a Christy, bossy, bossy pants who doesn't know how to express her emotions in a healthy way, and Claudia with a little bit of uh, not as cool, but definitely you know some some love of the arts and bad at math. Han, what are you? Yeah, I, I'm curious about what Marvin would even say, but I'm definitely very, 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 very Christy, not bossy at all, but very tomboyish. Um, and the two sort of others that I have a mix of is Mary Ann and Dawn. So shy uh, for public speaking, or at least I had been in the past um, and not speaking up enough for myself. And then Dawn, uh, because of the she's a very social justice warrior. So and and sort of hippy dippy too. So yeah, that's kind of me. See, I don't know if I like match any of these archetypes. I wonder if I might more closely relate to a as of yet unknown member of the club. A Jesse or a um Mallory? <laughs> I don't know. Jesse's very artsy. She's like a dancer. She's like a dreamer. And Mallory's a little bit of a bookworm. Are you so, Mark Evan Jackson? Are you I'm the dad? I'm definitely Richard Spears, yes. <laughs> With a bit of Watson in me. I'm I'm just a parent. I can see oh, that. I'm yeah, the I can see it. You're a Watson. <laughs> I will say the parents are very well flushed out. That yeah. was not I don't know if that was a parent <laughs> pun intended in the books. And the the movie didn't really dive in it, but I, I do appreciate the expansion and the nuance even brought to the parental characters, especially around things like motherhood and blending family and uh, you know, like, which I do think they talk about in the original series, but it was it was very well done. 
Well, yeah. I mean, one of the biggest thing for this series that I've been hearing a lot is it's definitely one of those um, things that were made for kids, but also for adults. Co-viewing. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and it definitely feels like the adult storylines are just as relatable as the kids storylines. And the kids storylines are very relatable for adults, too, because we all remember what it was like to, you know, see the eyes through a, I guess, 12 year old, 13 year old. 12 point to 13 year, 13 year old. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, um, of course, there's a point to that because the original readers of Babysitter's Club are parents now, or many of them are old enough to be parents. Some of them, like us, aren't like me. Um, (laughs) I am not a parent. Um, But, like, of course, have um, sort of fond memories of, let's say, Alicia Silverstone in Clueless, and it's the 25th anniversary of Clueless, by the way. And so to see her now as a mom, you're just like, oh, it's to be share. fair, a, a lot of the like heartthrobs and like people that we crushed on as kids are now playing moms and dads. Which... Yes, but I think certain properties make a point to cast them. <laughs> like, let's say Riverdale, very much. Oh, tried definitely. To, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so like those heartthrob like teen people back into that same world, but as the parents yeah. this time. So yeah, I I I just appreciated it because like. I'm not a parent, but at the same time, I was like, I could see like being a single mom, like Dawn's mother and like having to date again and not knowing how. And, you know, you see an old flame from high school. So it's kind of like, OK, I, I could see that. I I don't ever think about dating an old flame. They're old flames for a reason. Uh, <laughs> but but I totally understand that. Like, that's definitely a trope when, you know, like in Hallmark movies, especially. So. Yeah. All relatable. <laughs> So while watching the series, I was thinking, I don't think I've ever had a babysitter. This is such a good point. <laughs> I didn't oh, think about this. Is this like some weird like fantasy world? Because yeah, I never had one they, either. Not, they right? would strangers. Never, like stranger, my parents would right? never pay like no, some random no. kid to come take care of me. We did so much of just hanging out by ourselves. Yeah, like, they'd rather so just leave much. me at home alone. Because <laughs> right. you you like get thrown to your grandparents. Yeah, you never you never answer the door, basically. And I think they said, like, did I answer the phone or not? But yeah, or you got had a relative look after you. But like even then, like a grand like literally my brothers and I raised ourselves when my mom was at home. You know? Yeah, I feel like the three of us were pretty much last key kids, right? Like Oh yeah. Totally, totally. Oh yeah. <laughs> TV raised me, Marvin. That's <laughs> yeah. why. Yeah, that you get home, so much. You make your snack, you watch your TV, uh, you ignore your homework. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I had my grandparents. My grandparents lived with us until like we were I was like maybe like 10. So, my grand my she didn't speak a word of English and like didn't drive, you know, couldn't do any of that <laughs> stuff. She'd pick me up from school and like feed me, but um yeah, so maybe it's like this weird like wish fulfillment, like other fantasy. Maybe this is like the the glamorous world of babysitting we never knew. I mean, I knew it existed, maybe mm-hmm. because of the Babysitters Club. It just seemed like something outside of my culture. Other you know people what I'm saying? Did. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I do like the fact that in the first episode of this new series, you know, like Christy makes Alicia Silverstone, who plays her mother, like makes a. She she like asks if anyone can watch the the kid, the youngest brother. And like the two sons are automatically like no, which is like very on brand. And then Christy's like, oh, like I find if you like if you if like you need me to, like I will I can cancel my plans. And she's like very like, no, like your brothers didn't offer. It's like not fair that I asked you to do it just because you're like the girl. And I was like, Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then I do like the fact that like it's a it's a like babysitting is like it's seen it's a very, very gendered thing, right? But it's also like you know good for them for like getting paid for shit that people would expect them to do anyway. <laughs> the I do have to say the show is actually very sharp and witty, um, and that definitely is from the both the Glow and the Broad City alums from there. But uh, yeah, I was surprised at how funny the show was. Yeah, you know whenever they change up the casting for shows like this like reboots like this when they um diverge from like how the character's written to like a more diverse cast you know you always wonder is this like a color conscious thing or is this actually like is it going to be written in and this is a show that is a perfect example of writing in 
diversity when you cast a diverse character, right? Like Marianne being biracial is something that's a part of her character and it's actually explored in the text. And same with like Don being Latina. And it's um I think it's really cool for this type of essentially kids show to be this thoughtful and to really it's it's a little cheesy sometimes. It's very like it's very optimistic, but it's touching on a lot of topics. I mean I mean the the Claudia and the Mean Janine episode, right? Where they where Mimi, Claudia's grandma, has a stroke and then you know, she kind of has reversed back to memories of when she was incarcerated at Manzanar and they like spent like a good like like three to five minute scene just straight up like giving you a history lesson about <laughs> like the incarceration concentration camps of Japanese and Japanese Americans during World War Two. I was like, this show has done more than some of my history books have. Yeah, and, um, and that's and, a perfect know, yeah. example of like how old were we when we first learned about internment camps right i'd say for most people high school maybe is the earliest college for some people like this is just one of the many topics that this show explores through its episode that kids will be, be exposed to at a way younger age than like any of us yeah i think it's aimed towards like pretty young like definitely tweens so under so like whoever the heroes are like they're what 11 12 13 they it's aimed at lower yeah, uh, they're always audit. aspirational. Right, like right. Younger, so these yeah. are like six to eight year olds, maybe, maybe even younger if someone's precocious, you know. And uh, uh, but yeah, so it, it's they're definitely getting exposure to a lot more things. And this is why these kids are our future. And I hope that the planet still exists for them. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I do think it's it's so it's so interesting what lessons you remember from the content and the pop culture you consumed as a kid, I think it is so formative. I it was definitely I think it was definitely formative for our generation and our 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 people in our age range because there was no internet. Or it was very limited, right? And there was yeah. not like this all consuming. So like whatever we saw on TV, read in books, like that was the extent of our worldview. And sometimes it's a little more passive what passes across. Like you just turn on the TV, whatever's like playing on Disney or Nick or WB at the time, UPN, UPN TV, <laughs> RIP UPN. Um, and then, cause, cause I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna shit you guys. Like a big chunk of what I learned about Judaism comes from the Rugrats. That's oh, how I know what Hanukkah good. is. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Maca baby's gotta do. <laughs> you know, my household was not a Nickelodeon household. We did not believe in paying for television. So we never had cable. I think we stole television uh, cable at one point. This is, I mean, this <laughs> is really do what you gotta do. Yeah, I mean, this is really a long time ago, and my brothers were, of course, the culprits. Like, not like my mom or would know how to do that. So, hey, they're enterprising yeah. young men trying. Oh to, yeah, you we know. got so much software, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like I didn't know, don't know how to do any of it, but all I know is I got to watch like. Uh, wow, you you Natty are Gan. just incriminating <laughs> your brothers on this podcast. <laughs> They gave me an experience, the true American experience, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I am curious, though, uh, speaking of media that we consume in our formative years, like, obviously, we didn't have a babysitter's club to teach us all these important lessons about, um, about internment camps and trans rights and things like that. But, you know, growing up, what types of, um, what media do you remember being formative in, let's say, the babysitter's club timeframe of, like, middle school? 10, 11, 12. Do you remember? Yeah. I I mean, I was a super, super, super big reader uh, around that time because when I was in third grade, so that's a little bit younger, um, our local branch library opened. And I remember where it was because they previously had a bookmobile there. And that's how they actually search out to find the best locations is they put bookmobiles everywhere and see who goes. Um, but anyway, so I just remember my first book that I even borrowed from there was something that my brothers chose for me. Um, they were going to check it out and we had always gotten a bookmobile. So I was like, just get me something, you know what I like. And they got me Watership Down. And <laughs> that's a pretty big book for someone that young, but it was really good. Um, and so basically speaking of free babysitters, my parents dropped me off at the library a lot as free babysitting. 
So <laughs> I would not just only read books there, but then like I would always get the maximum number of books allowed to be checked out, which was 20. Mm. Um, so I always brought a bag. And, Nerd. Oh, completely. <laughs> like I burned through the kids section really fast. So I do remember around 11, 12 was when I started wandering into the adult section because I was like, well, I'm not going to clearly read these Babysitter's Club books, but I wanted to read other things. And I knew I liked fantasy. So that's why I read a lot of fantasy and including some of it was for younger adults, but a lot of it was for adults. Um Bless and, the public yeah. library because right. and, and bless librarians for not ever judging. Like I, I that's something I, I appreciate so much. Well, like so, so like every time, like you just ha- have you ever been to a library and they were like, "I'm not going to check this book out for you." Like that never happened to me, <laughs> oh, and which yeah, no. led me to some pretty interesting discoveries. So yeah. Um, I have a great story and then I'll talk. This is not like super formative, but this is like so indicative of what happens when you're a child of immigrants left to your own devices and like no one really to like guide you in the right way. Um, But I also would spend a lot of time at my local library and I was very much into like reading recipes. Whoa. And food. (laughs) Right. Um, But then (laughs) so I went to the library and I found this book that had a title that seemed to be about food and had recipes for it. Can you guess what Khan is like dying right now? It was like water for chocolate, (laughs) which if you have not read is an extremely sexually charged book. It's a beautiful book. It's still one of my favorite books today, but it is an extremely sexually charged, like family drama. Like there's a lot of like, metaphorical language that's basically like trying them like about fucking and so like i think it must have been 11 or 12 and i picked mm. this book up just because it had recipes like at the start of every chapter and i'm reading it i'm just like whoa <laughs> and the title doesn't really tell you much no, you know no, and the cover so this cover so innocuous it's like this beautiful like burnt yellow and like there's this woman like making food and it's basically about this woman who She's like the Cinderella daughter. She has to stay unmarried to take care of her abusive, like tyrannical mother. And so the love of her life ends up marrying her sister, but like her terrible sister, older sister. But then like they have an affair and like her her passions get channeled to the food. So basically like they eat her food and everyone gets like really horny and they just like start taking off their clothes. And I'm just like, what is that? And like, this is like magical realism, right? It's like, let's, it's like latinx like uh like literary tradition there's a lot of beautiful magical realism but i'm just like not understanding what is happening i'm like what is happening i just was reading this recipe for hot chocolate and now now everyone's naked (laughs) and you're saying this wasn't a formative book for you (laughs) i guess it was but um also harry potter (laughs) yeah because the thing is you're right like straightforward fantasy magic there makes sense in harry potter magical realism like what the hell is no, that no exactly and if you haven't encountered this before right like if it's it's a very mm-hmm. like it's a very like a metaphorical very mm-hmm. allegorical language and i was like what is happening but you know what like 11 you're just like parts are tangling oh, weird beautiful. things are yeah, happening yeah. you're like yeah let me keep reading <laughs> so many dirty books uh have you seen the movie I have not. Should I oh. watch the movie? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Also um, very horny. Yes. Uh, but I'm sure that the book is more so because you can go into descriptions and such. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Adult- key kids, man. Yeah. Uh, we had some, not to be too, you know, we had a lot of dirty books in my house because of my dad. Um, and, and then of course, you know, at the library, of course, but like for me, my favorite was fantasy. Um, and so I, I read most of that, but you know, like everyone else, latchkey kids, we were talking about, we watched a lot of TV and, um, I was definitely a different generation as far as the TV I watched. Um, later on when we were stealing cable, yes, there was Disney and, and Nickelodeon, but I do remember so much of my formative years, like younger, younger years, was like all the reruns and talk about things inappropriate yes. for children. I re- I watched Three's Company. And oh, me too. Like on syndication, question- right? Yeah. 
the questions I asked my mom a few times, like, okay, so one thing my brothers and I used to do was we would play strip poker, but we would dress up all of our stuffed animals and let them strip. Um, and this is what we learned from Three's Company. And then there's another time I remember asking my mom what a hooker was um, because Chrissy was very upset that someone called her a hooker and she was crying. And so my mom was like, um, it's a woman who entertains men. And I'm just thinking, why is that so bad? So <laughs> there's just, there's, I, I, like, and yet she never told us not to watch it. So yeah, there were definitely some things that were maybe more risque. You know, Fantasy Island and Love Boat were the two things that were more about romance, a little bit less about sex. But um, yeah, all the all the stuff in syndication, um, and all the the families that comes were the, the kind of my like my staples probably. Wow. I do think I do think at that age, like 11, 12, when you're when you're entering into middle school, though, right, that's when you start wanting to get like really edgy and you start consuming content. That's probably a little like risque or like a little like crass and you kind of start acting like a little shithead. <laughs> so for me, that was Family Guy. I was very big into Family Guy and Adult Swim. They would play it reruns of the original when there was still the original three seasons they would just play it over and over again two episodes per night starting at 11 a.m 11 p.m on adult swim again no bedtime because latchkey kid and (laughs) i just got like i could probably still recite those first three seasons of family guy word for word and my god i am so sorry to my family for that time and my (laughs) friends wow i I think that was i have a couple years on you jess so um, I think for us that was The Simpsons, mm-hmm. like just like the totally first, those first like the first decade seasons? of The Simpsons. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I definitely, and also you still don't need to watch any more of them because the same quotes that were good then are the ones people are quoting now. And I have Simpsons. not. I haven't seen Simpsons since like same. college, pretty same. much two thousand. Yeah, yeah, I know a lot yeah. of people who put it on in the background, and I literally haven't watched it for maybe a decade. Um, no, it's it's interesting because I do think there's like something. There's something about shows that they hit their stride around season three, because the same thing can be said for things like SpongeBob. I think so much about modern day meme culture is surrounding SpongeBob SquarePants. But if you look at all the memes, it's really just the first like three seasons. Well, Simpsons was, I think, still good for about 10 seasons, knowing that it's about 30 seasons in, you know. (laughs) So um, but yeah, so I I think. The other formative cartoon for me and my brothers would be Robotech, which was a an anime series that was actually created from three anime series, like sort of um, like sewn together to be in its uh, like supposedly its own like, you know, timeline and universe. But um, the animation styles were similar. And I was totally obsessed. We had toys we wrote when the like the local station like tried to change it to a different time because we couldn't like record it on time and they didn't care uh it just we 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 started doing the recording where we um would pause for the commercials so we didn't have commercials uh on the books i knew the songs all that type of stuff it was good like it was really like my first real anime obsession what about you marvin um so middle school era was my Star Wars phase when I watched the original trilogy like a billion times. This was before the special edition came out. So before all that CG stuff kind of, you know, messed with some of the the canon of that of that series. But um so kind of the flex a little bit. Like I always read above my grade level. Um I was one of the first people in my class to read. There's a like a picture of me in like first grade reading to my class right so um so when i was in middle school i actually started reading a lot of um like star wars like the thick like what's now called legends the expanding universe that's not canon anymore so things like the original thrawn trilogy uh, which is the original episodes seven eight and nine which some might say is the superior one because it actually has a plausible reason to bring back palpatine because he comes back as a clone of himself, a younger clone in that series, uh, which is already way better than whatever the hell Rise of Skywalker pulled. Yeah. Um, so dumb, because I know that was like the theory going into the movie that that's why he was back. And no, that's not what they did. <laughs> He's just back. Literally, he just, he just mysteriously came. That's literally what the cross said. Like, Palpatine has suddenly, has somehow <laughs> returned. I'm yeah. like, wait, we're not going to talk about 
the how? Someone did an interview like maybe in the last few months that said that he was a clone. But I was like, too late, dude. You probably just yeah. read it yourself. And it's like are trying to retro retconning it, you know? Um, uh, I was also really into the um, they had a, a trilogy of Han Solo novels about how he got to where he was in A New Hope, um, which I still think is better than the Solo movie. Solo um, was not that bad. OK. I didn't mind it either. Um, but, you know, interestingly... But based on the, like, compared to this novel series, I think it's it, yeah. it could have done more with it. Well, interestingly, um, Marvin, I, maybe I should check these out because Timothy Zahn and A.C. Crispin were both sci-fi authors that I did read growing up. <laughs> but I just never got to the Star Wars stuff. Yeah. Um, but I feel like, I mean, I guess from Star Wars, I learned a lot about, you know, fighting against Nazis or authoritarianism. But... I don't know if like going getting back to the babysitters club. I'm I'm glad that like kids content these days is a lot more um, socially aware, overtly so. Yeah, I mean the stuff that apparently we all we all consume like fantasy yeah. and like the, the one the it's genre all hero's one. journey stuff. It's all about chosen yeah. ones, which you know. Thinking about it, was that the best message to be consuming when we were kids? About you know, I mean, it depends <laughs> because some of my some of my books, like when I read the Earthsea trilogy. Um, by Ursula K. Le Guin, she actually wasn't about that. She was also an atheist. And like some of her, her, and she made sure her main character, you know, was uh, a person of color. So it, I, that's why I actually, I, I noticed after a certain point in time, I stopped reading a lot of male uh, fantasy mm. authors and the female fantasy authors I felt were more aware of, of just social situations for obvious reasons. So, um, and I started reading more POC, like, uh, uh, sci-fi authors, like Octavia Butler. So, I mean, it all, I think it all depends. And, and I do think, like, genre films are better about, like, like you were saying, Star Wars, um, about presenting these bigger themes without us actually understanding um, what's going on there. <laughs> well, it's also ironic because... I mean, a lot of discussion right now is about, like, can you separate the artist from the art um, and everything? And I don't really necessarily think you can, but it's a little ironic when the art created by a problematic artist is the very thing that lets you destroy <laughs> the artist themselves. I am talking, of course, about Harry Potter, which is the most formative piece of fandom pop culture whatever you want to call it that has shaped my life i it the last three books i started reading them when i was in second grade the last three books came out when i was in middle school and that's also when the first movie started coming out so i always consider myself extremely lucky to have like grown up with harry potter i went to every single midnight release my parents would have to buy two books, one for me and one for my sister, or we would fight, <laughs> would kill each other. I would read, stay up all night reading them. And, you know, when when you find out, it's like it's like you're finding out like if Anna, Anna Martin was like a Nazi or something, you know? Uh, ironically, like the things that taught me like, oh, you have to stand up for right and people are complicated and, you know, you have to show up and like, you know, even when the odds seem stacked against you is like from Harry Potter. So it's a very, uh, I'm still trying to unpack that, but um, definitely I think it, the majority of the people who grew up and truly like love Harry Potter are very against J.K. Rowling now because what she has spouted in recent weeks is just horrendous. And like, she's really doubling down on it, guys. It's not, she's not a good person. So yeah, no. I it's I, one of those like now the student has become the master and the student is way better at I it. was thinking more like the Romanian dictator who like got like killed and ousted by his own people because he like basically like made like took got rid of he like basically outlawed all forms of birth control and like basically there was a, like a generation population boom and they were the generation that ended up like ousting him. It's kind of <laughs> like that. She's like a Romanian dictator. <laughs> Yeah. Um, who knows what the effects of what the things that we consume still plays in our daily day-to-day -day life. I obviously had not been exposed to romance novels until literally this past year. But uh, what would have happened if I had read it when Jess read hers? 
you know. He just would have been really awkwardly horny as in like an 11 year old. <laughs> he would have had to been in the like, library. I cannot like stand up right now. Yeah. Um. <laughs> it's like Sorry. a really horny book, like really horny. There were so many books I had to kind of like, even though there were the books that my dad was reading, I had to hide from my parents. So, yes. Um, but you know what? Actually, if, going back to like Ursula K. Le Guin, she also wrote The Left Hand of Darkness. And um, that for me gave me a really kind of interesting thought process about gender very early on that was beyond just um, binary. So if if you don't know about it, I forgot what the name of the planet is, but there's this planet where um, someone goes to where each person trans- transitions from male to female or they become non-sexual in the middle and then they go back and forth. So that also means that you could be a father at some point. It could mean that you have given birth many times. Um, and so someone like us who stays you know, supposedly one gender throughout their lives was seen as a pervert because when you are showing gender um, expression, uh, like in your body, that means that you are uh, like sexually active and fertile. So like most most of the time they were kind of just, you know, non-binary. Um, and then when they were in heat, let's say, then they took on male or female characteristics. Um, but yeah, so that was like very early on. And there were other sci-fi novels and short stories that really made me think about that type of stuff too. Um, and that had a really, really huge impact on me as far as like anytime any, oh, and also uh, fantasy novels that had a lot of gay people in it. So like anytime I met with anyone that was outside of my experience, those were usually the things I went back to. Um, and yeah. I think let me be hopefully more accepting, you know. Yeah. Well, hopefully this new babysitter's club will help a whole new generation of boys and girls and everything in between be more accepting um, because it truly is a delightful show. I had a lot of fun. I didn't expect to have so much fun watching it. <laughs> right? Yeah. It I mean, it's fun. for girls, right? <laughs> yeah. No, right? It's, it's for it's... everybody. <laughs> but you found everybody. out you were wrong. <laughs> it's a, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the real I, I babysitter. Or the friends we made along the way. <laughs> I really do want one of these babysitters because when I'm assuming it's going to get a season two to be a boy. Because I noticed that the rival babysitters, what is it, club, whatever, uh, had a boy as one of them. I think that was the boyfriend of the babysitter. You think? Yeah, because that was the whole thing where. Oh, no, um, but uh, uh, I, he didn't look the same. I don't know. I thought I oh, saw I some like an Asian guy. Maybe. I'll have to go back and look. Watch. I mean, I know um, I took a peek at the Wikipedia of the Babysitter's Club, and I think the dude that Marianne crushes on. Logan. A, oh, he's a good one. Member. Yeah, I yeah. liked him. If he becomes an honorary member like or joins the club, then that would be cool. Yeah. Well, Babysitter's Club is now available to stream on Netflix. Um, watch it with your kids, or if you don't have kids, watch it with yourself, because it's a treat and you deserve it. And with that, that'll also do it for this episode of the Good Pop Culture Club. I want to thank my co-hosts Han and Jess once again for joining me to talk about um, the pop culture that gets us through our days. Um, next week will be another edition of our monthly news roundup. Um, do we want this? Um, so please come back for that. But until then, um, Han, Jess, where can people follow you if they want to follow your thoughts online? I'm on Twitter at Just Jew Tweets. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Hanonymous, H-A-N-H-O-N-Y-M-O-U-S. And I'm at Marvin Yue. You can follow the show at Good Pop Club, and you can subscribe to us at goodpop.club. Good Pop is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-hosted podcasts, including great shows such as Saturday School, They Calls Bruce, uh, first of all, and more. You can find out more about our fellow Potluck Pods by going to the website podcastpotluck.com. And um, I guess I've never really asked for this before, but if you are enjoying what you hear from this podcast, um, please give us a rating review on iTunes because we always love to hear feedback and we love to hear from people that are listening. So, five stars. Five stars yeah. only. <laughs> yes. Thank you for your five stars in advance. You can give us as many stars as you want. Five. <laughs> you want to give us five. Five stars preferred, of course. Uh, and until next time, thanks for listening. Bye, everyone. 
Bye. Bye. We're still here, and we're going strong. It's an exciting time in Asian America. There are more movies, TV shows, books, and music reflecting us than ever. But all of these represent just a small slice of Asian American culture and experiences. So what do we do? Tell more slices. Asian Americana is a show that explores these slices of distinctly Asian American culture and history. We've talked about how Chinese Americans built California's Sacramento Delta, the art scene turns gallery institution giant robot, a play that explores the lost Cambodian pop music of the 60s and 70s, and, of course, Boba, just to name a few stories. You can find Asian Americana at asianamericana.com or on your podcast app.